This is a Broad Pods production. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When it comes to women's rights, in many cases, the freedoms we have today are because of the persistence of lawyers who've gone before us. So how does the law protect and empower women? Well, understanding your rights is a good place to start. In this podcast, we go inside landmark cases and the laws that have redesigned society. And we'll hear from strong, smart and experienced lawyers determined to make a difference in the lives of women and girls. I'm Jo Stanley. And this is Lay Down the Law. Lay Down the Law is a collaboration between Broad Radio and Morris Blackburn Lawyers. Morris Blackburn Lawyers, experience you can count on. If you and four girlfriends were to get together, maybe for brunch one weekend, statistically, in your group of five, four of you at some point will have been the victim of sexual harassment in the workplace. That's according to the latest survey from the Australian Human Rights Commission, which also showed that the situation hasn't improved at all over the last four years. But there are some very clear pathways to change behaviour and workplace culture. So there's two important pieces to this puzzle. It's all about transparency. It's all about using the existing tools that we have to provide a safe place of work. And it's about engaging a whole workplace because we know that we need a structural solution to what is a structural problem. It's also about listening to victim survivors. And at Broad Radio, we are committed to always centering the voices of victim survivors. But you'll notice in this episode of Lay Down the Law, the distinct absence of sexual harassment survivors. And that's because this episode is about non-disclosure agreements, the contracts between employer and employee that frequently form part of a sexual harassment settlement that effectively stop the person who signed up to it from ever speaking about what happened to them to anyone ever again. So as you can imagine, it's difficult to find a person who has signed an NDA to speak about NDAs because if they've signed one, they're legally bound not to speak. Instead, we've brought together a panel of four people who are fighting in differing ways to bring an end to the misuse of NDAs. Firstly, Professor Julie McFarlane is a Canadian law professor and co-founder of the Can't Buy My Silence campaign, a global campaign to stop NDAs from protecting perpetrators and silencing victims. It's great to have you on the podcast, Julie. Lovely to be here. Thank you for having me. With Julie is Liberty Sanger, who heads up the National Personal Injury Compensation Departments at Morris Blackburn Lawyers, and more recently was co-chair of the Ministerial Task Force on Workplace Sexual Harassment in Victoria. Liberty, great to have you back on Broad Radio. Thanks, Jo. Lovely to see you. 
Also with us is Jessica Dawson-Field, an Employment Senior Associate at Morris Blackburn Lawyers, working daily with victims of workplace sexual harassment. Thanks to you also for joining us, Jess. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And it most definitely is a big cast of voices leading this incredibly important campaign. So also joining us is Will Strike, Assistant Secretary of the Victorian Trades Hall Council. Hi there, Will. Hello. This landscape is very much global, of course. Sexual harassment is a worldwide problem and NDAs are prevalent worldwide also. So, Julie, can we start with you? Because I think your experience gives a really great introduction as to why there needs to be reform around NDAs. Tell us about the Can't Buy My Silence campaign. How did this come about? Well, I had had some personal experience of the use of non-disclosure agreements initially when, because I am a sexual abuse survivor, when I sued the Anglican Church um, for historic sexual abuse of me when I was a teenager. And I was made aware that they would ask for a non-disclosure agreement, which I was absolutely unprepared to agree to. And I was fully backed by my lawyer on that. So that was relatively straightforward. I simply said in our first negotiation, don't even ask me, it's not going to happen. And the issue was off the table. But obviously, um, I had a little bit of privilege in making that assertion. They knew I was a lawyer. They knew I understood the implications. They didn't raise it again. <clears throat> but then a couple of years after that, um, I came across, um, I started to hear from students at my university who were being sexually harassed by one of my faculty colleagues. We asked for an investigation. The investigation was completed. It terminated him. We were all very relieved because it's very difficult to move um, a tenured professor, but he was terminated. Uh, except that then I started to get phone calls from other law schools in different parts of the world asking me why he'd left the University of Windsor and the penny dropped they'd given him a non-disclosure agreement. So that began a whole odyssey for me, which was um, very, kind of blew my life up really, because although I hadn't signed the non-disclosure agreement, I tried to hold the university to account to the fact that what they had effectively done, well, they had done, was to secretively pass someone whom they knew to be abusive and a danger to students to another school without telling them. Um, it ended in a, so-called defamation suit against me um, and all kinds of you know awful consequences and I left the university and shortly after I left the university uh, I got in touch with I contacted and connected Zelda Perkins who people probably know her name she was the first woman to very courageously stand up and break her NDA with Harvey Weinstein signed years earlier and Zelda and I decided we would launch Can't Buy My Silence, a global campaign focusing initially on Canada, where I live, and the United Kingdom, where Zelda lives. And we've been working on that ever since and have been in particular uh, using a piece of model legislation, which we originally developed with Irish legislators to uh, persuade governments to advocate that this legislation should be put in place, which will effectively ban and make unenforceable the use of non-disclosure agreements in cases of sexual misconduct, discrimination, harassment, and bullying. Julie, twice on the weekend when I was talking to others about what we were doing, they each shared a story 
of knowing about a perpetrator who continued to be appointed or promoted or moved on to better positions and they knew that this person was uh, a sexual harasser and although they themselves were not subject to an NDA they knew that uh, the victims had been subject to an NDA and the organizations were also subject to an NDA and the perpetrators were thriving and this is driving women mad it's driving victims mad because we can see what's happening Liberty, I'm glad you're chiming in there. What is your experience of NDAs and the impact on victim survivors of sexual harassment? Uh, in the experience of me as a lawyer, in, in our experience with the task force, what we learned about was that uh, there is a, a real therapeutic value in being able to speak, uh, whether it's at the time or whether it's later. And that might be speaking just to friends and family in being able to process what has happened. It might be speaking to clinicians, it might be speaking to other uh, specialist practitioners. Um, but people who sign these, uh, the victims of workplace sexual harassment who sign these, feel like they can never speak again. So they, um, they both are detrimental to the health of those that have suffered workplace sexual harassment who ought to be able to control their own story and who they tell and on the terms on which they tell it, and they ought not be living in fear about uh, if they were to share that story, that they're going to be uh, sued, punished. Um, but they also have a terrible impact on women and victims being willing to come forward and share their story because they don't want to enter into NDAs. Um, and, uh, you know, we also don't know who these perpetrators are that are continuing to thrive and survive in workplaces. If I can add to what Liberty has just said, um, I think sometimes people misunderstand that this is somehow about uh, banning or restricting NDAs would be taking confidentiality and privacy away from victims. It's perfectly possible to have a one-sided clause that just protects the victim. The problem and, and really the sort of toxicity of the NDA is it's a bargain that says unless you promise to protect our confidentiality, we won't promise to protect yours. And that's what's really obnoxious about this because it's really giving more power to the powerful. Um, it's exploiting that power difference. Um, and just to Liberty's last point, we have data that we've collected in our campaign that shows that almost 30% of, of people who have experienced sexual harassment and discrimination and bullying at the workplace don't make a complaint because they anticipate they'll be asked to sign an NDA and they don't want to. So the chilling effect is absolutely clear. We have empirical evidence to show that. Will, you're nodding furiously there. That reflects your experience? Yeah, as a trade union official, you hear these stories all the time. And um, it's really hard because in many cases, the, the options available to us really are about compensation. And in many cases, the, the, the women don't want compensation. They want this thing to stop and they want it not to happen to somebody else. And that means that they have to be able to talk about it at some point in the future, even if not straight away, right? Because it's too traumatic and they've experienced something that's really, that undermines their confidence in themselves, that's been often long-term, but the evidence says that in many cases, people who've experienced sexual harassment, it's gone on for at least six months. So it's not a short-term one-off thing. Um, and that over the course of time has had a really corrosive effect on them. And so they want that thing to stop. 
Um, in many cases, it's hard to stay in that workplace because they don't trust the processes are going to look after them. They've had to run the gauntlet of actually reporting and then going through a process. So I'll be honest, in many cases, a trade union official, people have reported these things to me and they've said, I don't want to do anything about it. Once you talk to them about these are the options, this is what we can do, this is how that process works, um, in many cases they say, I'm just going to leave the employer, uh, I'm, I'm not in a position to do anything about it. So, in fact, by the time we're talking about NDAs, we're talking about a very small proportion of cases where the generally women um, have been brave enough to go all the way to reporting it internally and then following up to go and see a, a union or a lawyer and then pursuing the matter further. And that's such a tiny proportion of cases. Um, I think getting rid of NDAs would also mean that uh, women would feel perhaps more confident in coming forward. It becomes less legalese as well. And Jess, if a woman is seeking your legal advice, as Will says, she's already gone through so much, what place are they in emotionally to be making a decision about an NDA? They're in a really difficult place because often they've been brave enough to make a complaint, but perhaps within the organisation that they work for or somewhere external. They're feeling very vulnerable because effectively they're responding to the company who's got its own lawyers and uses its own tactics. Um, they're dealing with their own stress, be it financial or psychological. Uh, it's a really complicated, difficult time. And in that space, it might be the first time they've engaged with lawyers. So they're having to get an understanding of the legal process, what it means, you know, why there's delays, why we need to ask all these questions. And we really at Morris Blackburn try and do it in the most trauma-informed way that we can. And it's still difficult. It's still a challenging process. And then at the end, when it reaches an agreement, what's on the table is effectively a legal contract that is going to bind them for the rest of their lives sometimes when it has closes about confidentiality and non-disparagement. So Julie, what is the history of NDAs and how have they come about being used in a sexual harassment claim? Well, the history is really interesting. Um, as always, the history, you know, really illuminates something that we might not otherwise understand fully. And the history is simple, that originally NDAs were created to protect trade secrets and intellectual property. Um, the previous legal doctrine that employers had relied upon in order to protect their commercially sensitive information was something called restraint of trade, which uh, is, is part of the Australian common law as well. And uh, the courts took a sort of somewhat um, restraining view towards that. So they would sometimes, you know, strike down an agreement to restrain a former employee going and to another competitor because they'd say, no, this is for too long, it's got to be shorter. So NDAs were invented in the 1980s during the tech boom to make indefinite restraint of trades in a contract. That was why they were invented. Um, so there wouldn't be any time limit. But we've seen them creep into all these other areas so that now effectively um, everything bad that happens at the workplace is being treated as if it's a trade secret. Oh, well, and how they come about is that they have become part of the standard way that a negotiation is undertaken. I mean, it's this kind of wicked deal where everyone's being conscripted into uh, their use. They are a pro forma in most agreements which are put. 
And if you just think about the, the moment in time when a, a victim is being asked to sign an NDA, they've, they've gone through that whole process of, of the, you know, a grievance or legal process, and they're at the point of a negotiation, the hurly-burly of the um, whole event and all its, the ramifications arising from that coming down upon them. Uh, and being asked to deal with you know, whether the compensation amount is the right amount or not, often being told about the risks of pursuing a case further. And in addition to that, the NDA is just presented as a fait accompli, probably with a tale of, well, you're not likely to want to talk about this anyway. You don't want this on the front page of a newspaper. And so it's one of many ingredients that's just simply presented uh, at a moment in time when you're probably at your lowest ebb and what you really want is the whole thing behind you. Uh, it's not until later that often we see victims processing what has happened to them and wanting to be able to talk about it to whomever it is that they choose. It's usually friends and family, uh, but it could be uh, to a broader audience. But they want to talk about their experience. They might even need to tell a future employer about why they left their last employer. And it's all in hushed tones and secret, and they have to come up and invent, uh, come up with an inventor story. So, uh, you know, everyone has found themselves uh, in this wicked bargain where it is simply presented as a fait accompli. But in practical terms, Jess, is there any movement away from that fait accompli? Um, I think there is a change because there was certainly a period where they were just default very broad. So it would include um, you couldn't. We'd always have to negotiate to include a carve out. Oh, can you speak to your doctor? Can you speak to your family? Can you speak to your support people? Now, if the clauses are in there, they have that carved out anyway so that people can seek that support. And then we might be negotiating around how long is it in place? Um, you know, what can be said? Is there a joint statement perhaps or a joint um, set of words that people can use to explain why they've left an organisation? Because women are left in this really awkward position where everyone knows they've left. Uh, they can't say anything. How do they explain why they've left an organisation where they've been at for 10, 15, 20 years um, and moved on? And it's just people having to tie themselves in knots to come up with narratives that don't contravene the NDA. But I would say there's been a shift and I think there's a shift on the other side of the fence as well um, in terms of uh, companies. And I know there's some large companies in Australia that have said people aren't necessarily or weren't necessarily required to... Um, follow the NDA if they gave evidence into the most recent um, inquiry that the Australian Human Rights Commission did. Um, so I think there is a cultural shift. I think there's probably more to happen. Um, and I think it's um, it's moving more towards a space where they're not a default. And that's a good thing. Because it needs to be individualised. It needs to be. It's not one size fits all. Um, people need to get an understanding of what they're signing up for and what it means and what the long-term implications are. And just, just to make sure that we have kind of conveyed this, Joe, um, you know, this is, it's about individual cases. That's what Liberty and I are talking about here, but it's also about systemic issues. Um, yeah. Outside of the context of sexual harassment, which itself is a systemic issue, but one of the things we've found in the campaign is the very widespread use of non-disclosure agreements against people who raise complaints about racism, 
anti-Indigenous racism. Um, they are endemic in relation to pregnancy discrimination. So what we're actually doing is perpetuating all of these systemic problems that we already know exist by hiding them in non-disclosure agreements. We know that there's a very small number of people who commit a very large number of workplace misconduct issues and wrongdoing. Um, we know this. We've had research showing this pattern for years. So what we are doing in NDAs is we are enabling those people um, to go and do it again. Stick around. In a moment, we have advice for you if you find yourself being pressured to sign a non-disclosure agreement. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Will, how much will NDAs impact sexual harassment? The, the stats around sexual harassment are terrible um, and it's been around for so long and it doesn't feel like it's getting any better. So that's why we say, for instance, we don't think that training, diversity training um, and training for senior executives is a part of the puzzle, but it's often the only way that organisations address these things. They send kind of the executive leadership off to do diversity training, but they don't do anything down the line. and. Like I say, sexual harassment is as likely to happen on the factory floor as it is in head office. And that training's been part of the positive duty for so long and it's clearly not fixed the problem because there's still sexual harassment. We still see many women who are being sexually harassed. So if that's not working, what else do, What else needs to happen? And I think, as Will said, NDAs are part of the picture, in, you know, but there's so much else. It's a whole broad spectrum of things that need to change to eradicate this um, this issue in workplaces, which continues. Um, but even there, you, you see cases of where allegations have been made and then six months down the track, that person is to great fanfare appointed to the, you know, the bloke in that case is appointed with, to great fanfare to a different company to be kind of the leader because what's more important is that they have a track record of making money rather than they're someone who creates a culture where their staff are, feel safe respect, and respected. Well, Will, I know that you're involved in a campaign that mirrors the Can't Buy My Silence campaign that Julie's heading up. Can you tell us about that? So the broader campaign is called Organise for Equality and it covers a whole range of changes that we want to see around eliminating sexual harassment, discrimination, um, gender-based violence at work. Uh, the strand that we are working on this year is the um, we want to see non-disclosure agreements banned, uh, except for in certain very limited circumstances. So if they are requested by the um, victim survivor of sexual harassment um, and with the ability for them to change their mind at some future date, because we know that being silenced in the long term can be very harmful. So there are 
uh, victims of sexual harassment who want to have a non-disclosure agreement because they are not ready to talk about it, they don't want it talked about, and so it should only be at their initiation that a non-disclosure agreement is used. And then, but we do say at some point in the future, entirely at their discretion, they should be able to change their mind. Yeah, I really love what you're proposing as a union, um, Will. It's it's victim centred, and it allows mm. it allows for that process of months, years down the track, a woman realising, oh wow, I now view what happened to me with a very different sort of headspace because I've done some healing of some kind. And also, it might be that they hear of another case at the same workplace. And at that point, they say, you know what, um, I don't want to be silent anymore because I want to show support for the, the other victims. Because generally, the, the reality is where sexual harassment happens, it's not one bad apple. It might be a bad apple, but they exist inside a culture that's driving and supporting them to be bad. And so what can happen is, in the first instance, a woman just says, look, I just want this done, I want it finished. But then a few years down the track, you know, she's getting together with mates who still work at that workplace and they say, oh, there's been X has happened to somebody. And she's like, you know what? I wanna be able to support that other person and I wanna be able to come forward and say that actually this is a culture, it's a problem, not just one off, it's a bigger problem. So. Often that's the case for women as well. It's not just the healing process. It's actually then um, they want to step up and support others. So this is a question for all of you. Have you witnessed that moment where a victim has realised they've signed an NDA and they now wish to be able to speak? Well, as Liberty said, we hear from people weeks, months or even years later. So the people who contact our campaign, can'tbuymysilence.com, um, will often be in the early stages of realizing this is what their agreement means. Um, and, you know, to be fair, they are no longer working with the lawyer they worked with. That's long gone. And the realization is often weeks, months, or, or even longer afterwards. And, I mean, I can't even <clears throat> begin to do justice to the amount of trauma that people describe. Um, we have on our website, can'tbuymysilence.com, we have a testimonies page, which contains the anonymized, very carefully anonymized testimonies of people who feel it would be cathartic to actually be able to share their story there. And these testimonies speak to um, the impact of realizing that they can't speak. And, you know, one of the things I know that drives victims a little crazy is this constant repetition of how, oh, the NDA is there to bring them closure. It brings them exactly the opposite of closure because now they have this monkey on their back, which dogs them, you know, forever uh, going forward because NDAs, as I explained earlier, are forever. Mm. And Joe, that's absolutely our experience too. We have uh, people coming back after the agreement wanting to just go over the uh, meaning of the non-disclosure part of their agreement or, or the confidentiality clause and want to wonder whether or not they can now speak or go back to the employer and ask whether they can speak. And, of course, the advice has to be you can't. 
um, which is heartbreaking advice. Um, so, I, you know, I think this realisation dawns on people well after the event. And as Julie says, the harm that that causes um, occurs well after the event. But I do want to say to anyone who's listening uh, who has um, been a party to these, and, you know, we all have, you know, I don't want you to kind of um, be, you know, self-flagellating about your participation. This, this has been such, you know, a wicked thing that we've all been conscripted into it and we've all thought that it was a necessary part of any agreement. Um, you know, it's only really now with that sunlight having been uh, shone upon them that we are understanding that, firstly, we can strike an agreement without them, but secondly, listening to the history of where they were supposed to be used and what kind of secrets they were supposed to protect, understanding they have no place in a workplace sexual harassment matter. Uh, and so, you know, together, working collectively, we can make sure that we start being deliberate about what the terms of any settlement or agreement are and really explaining to um, to victims what the consequences could be today and tomorrow for them and if you're in the position of the employer uh, really thinking about why you would even want one in the first place uh, there is now so much good literature out there about, about what best practice is that I would suggest that if you continue to insist on them you're going to be in the group of laggards and um, and not be an employer of choice Whereas if you are one of the employers that doesn't insist on them, and in fact won't request them, then you're going to be in that bucket of employers that are going to be the desirable ones to work for. Yeah, I, I just to add, you know, we've seen a, a number of cases in North America in the last um, six months or so where organizations have decided that they will not use NDAs any longer and they will release people from existing NDAs. Examples include Google and Apple and the UK, the BBC. Um, because I think what's happening is that these are really looking bad for brand. You know, people, these organizations, I mean, I'm not fooling myself that they're, they're making this change because they have been convinced of the moral argument um, and the, the trauma that they inflict on victims. They're making these decisions for business reasons because it makes them look terrible. Uh, there's starting to be shareholder resolutions brought forward in a number of different organizations. And, and you know, we're starting to, to realize, I think, that. I've, I've had conversations with a lot of CEOs now in which I've said, would you really ever enforce one of these agreements? Would you bring a victim to court for breaking their NDA because they talked to their mom? <laughs> and of course they say, well, no, we wouldn't do that. That would look terrible. So my next question is, so what are you, why are you doing them? Because you're not gonna use them in any case. They're oh. using them to intimidate people into silence. Will, I mentioned in our introduction that at Broad Radio we always centre the voices of victim survivors, which in this case isn't possible because they would have signed an NDA. But as a union official, you, I'm certain, can by proxy centre the women we're talking about here. So can you share with us the story of the impact of an NDA on a woman that you've represented? Um, I can talk about as a trade union official mm. um, representing a woman in a workplace where the sexual harassment was long-term and it was really bad and she had suffered extreme psychological distress as a result of it. Um, we went through a process of raising that with the organisation, um, a process of negotiation where effectively they stonewalled and denied 
every step of the way that anything had happened. They initially refused to investigate it. Um, uh, we had to persist in circumstances where the victim was uh, uh, fragile is the word I would use, like she was in extreme distress. And then uh, finally at the end, uh, because we persisted, they effectively put money on the table, which was not nearly enough for what had happened to her, but she was so exhausted by the process that she agreed to it and then they had the standard terms of settlement that said a non-disclosure agreement was there and a non-disparagement agreement. Um, and she agreed to it effectively because she was exhausted and she didn't feel she needed her life to go on. And for her, she just didn't feel like, she felt like um, her life couldn't, she couldn't move beyond this thing unless this part of it was done. And it was terrible because, you know, um, she didn't work for a period of time and it was a real struggle for her. And the non-disclosure agreement, I mean, to some extent, the non-disclosure agreement was kind of the final insult to injury um, because it was the organisation's way. They maintained the denial all the way. And the non-disclosure agreement was kind of their way of saying, don't ever talk about this because, to be clear, nothing ever happened to you. This is your problem. I mean, it's such a common story, Will, that narrative where people are at the end and it's people are just broken because it's taken so long the process has taken so long, people's health has deteriorated, and then in that space they have to make a decision. Um, and there's compensation on the table and people do want to move on, women do want to move on. And it's, yeah, just hearing you sort of talk that through, it's like that's that's the common narrative, I think, for a lot of people in these claims, a lot of women in these positions. And, and then from our perspective, we look at the profile of people who are more likely to bring these kinds of claims, right? They are more likely to be women who've got some kind of independent means. They are women more likely to be at the upper end of an organisation rather than women on the factory floor, for example, for whom the language barriers and other things might be. I mean, the, the, the conversation about sexual harassment, the NDA conversation is important um, because it's about women being able to stand to get, we would say women being able to stand together in solidarity um, and support each other with these kinds of claims but the conversation more broadly uh, we're currently talking about the people who have the means to get to the point where they can lodge a claim and that means that they're probably um, in a in a reasonable position to start with and they feel disempowered and terrified by the process imagine what it's like if you are a woman on a factory floor for whom English is a second language or you're a migrant worker um, on a visa or something like that, I mean, we have a long way to go to address the scourge of sexual harassment in workplaces and this is an important part of that so that partly we can talk about this more frequently. If we don't know that there are victims, then we don't know that there are crimes and if we don't know that there are crimes, then we can't raise um, knowledge about that and about how um, ubiquitous this is everywhere. Like it's everywhere, right? It's everywhere. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it, it also takes away the, the potential for, you know, women to do what they would no normally do, even at a, 
you know, at a sort of initial level, you know, don't go in the back room with so-and-so, you know, be careful about so-and-so, you know, just giving warnings to um, our colleagues, which is something which I think has been part of women's work culture, has a, is a necessary part of women's work culture and always has been. I think, too, there's an aha moment when it comes to women speaking with each other in the workforce about, okay, if this were to ever happen, you do not want to sign an NDA. Like, I think that that shift is quite new. And when women start talking and understanding how various situations have unfolded to others, you know, that's really, really powerful. It really, you know, we start to understand the culture of the workplaces that we're in and what we will and won't tolerate and the kind of places we want to work. That's pretty powerful too. And, you know, just to, just to give you a practical example of this, Joe, what, you know, the campaign doesn't give legal advice. Um, but when we often hear from people who are in the process of negotiating, and just as you say, they are now somewhat more aware I think this is an NDA, they might send it to me so that I can look at it and say, yes, it is, or no, it isn't, or whatever. And then what we often suggest to people is, you know, just say no, just push back. Because here is the big bluff. The party that wants that NDA, the party that is saying they require the, you know, the person who's been harassed to sign it, are the same people who don't want this out in the open. And if you simply dig in your heels and say, no, I'm not signing, then there would, ha there would be a court case. Now, we hear all the time, and this is absolutely the case, that victims don't have the resources or the emotional energy to take this to court. But it's not going to court. It's not going to court because the employer doesn't want it in the public domain. And what we hear all the time from people is, I just stood firm, and eventually they said, here's your settlement without an NDA. In other words, call them on it. Oh, that is such great advice, Julie. And Will, I'm sure that you can add to that. Get advice. Uh, make sure that you are clear about the consequences of what you are doing. Um, make a decision based on what's best for you today, but also on what's best for you in five years' time. And I think if you're in a space echo everything Will said, you've got to get advice if you can. And if you're in a space where you can't do that, be it time or money or you're under pressure, there are some guidelines that the um, Respect at Work has released, um, which you could refer to. And they say that you should be able to get independent legal advice and that clauses should be drafted in plain English. You might be able to refer to them and say, I need time to consider this. This has got long-term implications. I need to get legal advice. Okay, so your campaigns, the work that you're all doing is towards an end to the misuse of NDAs. How and where do you see these changes starting to happen? Uh, well, it's coming in many forms. So we see, as I've said before, we see the Champions of Change Coalition have come out and they've got model guidelines on how they should be used. Uh, we see the Australian Council of Superannuation Investors come out and make uh, insist, in fact, on work being undertaken uh, and um, and NDAs not being used. I think they require transparent reporting of NDAs in order to receive investments. So there there are a number of organisations that are incentivising. Uh, what Julie and I would say is that one way to really stamp it out is a legislative ban, uh, because that doesn't rely on. Uh, individual agreements being struck and and the uh, 
goodwill of the participants within that deal actually sends a signal from the state that these are evil and pernicious and they won't be permitted to be part of these agreements. And the campaign has been working with governments in different parts of the world uh, to bring forward what we have as a model bill. Um, it's just one way to do this, but it stipulates the ways in which NDAs you know, cannot be used. Um, and that is available also on our website. It began in Ireland, where I first, the campaign first worked with um, an Irish senator. And now we're gradually working our way across Canada. Much like Australia, we have a state federal um, jurisdiction and there are a lot of provinces. So we already have this being brought forward in two provinces, passed in another and about to be tabled uh, in two others. Um, and then the United Kingdom, there have been a whole series of efforts to bring this forward as a private members bill. Um, Liberty and I have also been providing some briefing to the Victoria government about the format of this bill. And there certainly seems to be a lot of interest in that. I know that Liberty, the work that you did in Victoria with the Ministerial Task Force on Workplace Sexual Harassment recommended the removal of the NDAs and also Kate Jenkins' work with the Respect at Work report included that as well. So we're seeing real progress here in Australia. Do you see that um, unfolding in a more formal sense? Uh, the Victorian government has committed to stamping these out, so they were very interested to hear from Julie about the international experience and how that works. Uh, we will also uh, be meeting with the federal government, and the federal government is really interested in what action it can take uh, in order to improve uh, gender equality. Uh, we've seen the federal government implement all of Kate Jenkins' 55 recommendations. Uh, so I'm very hopeful that we'll re receive a favourable audience there. Uh, and that they'll be interested in taking this further with a legislative ban. And the union continues to campaign too, Will? So we've got a couple of things. Um, we've got a petition running. We are also um, planning a series of events, like we've got a Feminism at the Hall event where we're going to be talking about this. Um, we're planning a Women's Parliament Day where we're going to go down and talk to any politician at Victorian Parliament House who will listen to us about what we want in this process and we're looking for um, women who want to participate in that with us. Uh, so we, all, we show up en masse, 60 to 100 of us, and we send delegations of women in to talk to every MP about why this is important and what we think it should look like. Um, we'll keep campaigning on this going for um, basically until we get the outcome that we want from it. Uh, so uh, the other thing is we've got a report a kind of um, anonymous online report that you can do. So if you have signed an NDA, you can tell us about that experience, um, tell us the story, and then if you consent to it, then we'll make contact with you and have a chat about whether you want to talk to the media about that. Because one of the problems with this is that it's largely hidden because when you sign an NDA, you're not allowed sometimes to talk about signing an NDA. Um, and so, uh, by bringing the stories to the fore, even if we de-identify them, then um, we can make clear the extent of the problem. Julie, your website, can'tbuymysilence.com, is also a wonderful resource. Well, yes, we have, we have people reaching out all the time um, and we do the very best we can. This is a, a completely volunteer-driven campaign. 
um, you know, basically self-funded by myself and Zelda. And we speak to as many people as we can, but we also direct them to the resources that we've put together on the website that are both for people who have already signed. So for example, we have a, just as an example, we have a please release me template letter. Um, and we also have uh, resources for people who uh, think they might have signed an NDA to help them recognize them. And as I mentioned, we also encourage people who have not signed but are being pressed to do so to push back. Um, we you know, would like to be able to spend hours with every person who contacts us. Um, we don't have enough hours in the day to do that, but we do try to provide those resources. And I want people to know who are listening to this that there is work being done, there is support, you're not alone, uh, and we are going to get this problem fixed. Well, as they say, the first step towards change is very often awareness. So this conversation is a critical one. And from a broad radio perspective, we'll continue having it wherever we can. Will and Jess, thank you for the amazing advocacy work you're doing and for joining us today. Thank, thank you. Very much. Thanks for doing this. Liberty, uh, as I always say, thank you so much for your incredible advocacy in and around workplace sexual harassment particularly, but just in general around gender equality. It's been awesome to have you and your perspective on this podcast. Thanks, Joe. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast, Julie. It's been great for you to spend some time with us, I know, on your holiday, so thank you. <laughs> holiday? I'm... Do you get a holiday when you're a volunteer of such a campaign? Well, um... Yeah, I mean, I'm probably working harder than I've ever worked in my life at the moment. And I've always worked really, really hard. So uh, it's a bit nuts. But on the other hand, um, it's beautiful here in Sydney. The sun is shining, unlike where I live. And so I am very happy to be among friends and very happy to be working with Liberty and other amazing advocates here in Australia who are going to get this 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 rock as Zelda and I always talk about, we have to get the rock to the top of the hill and then get it rolling down again. We're getting close. We're getting close. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Lay Down the Law. We want to say thank you to Julie, Liberty, Will and Jessica for sharing their experience and advice. If you are experiencing sexual harassment in your workplace, remember you're not alone and you are entitled to take action. Seek help and advice from your union or a lawyer and for a fantastic resource, head to respectatwork.gov.au. Please also head to can'tbymysilence.com to lend your support to Julie's campaign or megaphone.org.au to sign the union's NDA petition. And the next time you are having brunch with your girlfriends, have that conversation with them about non-disclosure agreements so that they are fully informed of their rights and so that you all perhaps agree when it is put in front of you, you do not have to sign it. Next time on Lay Down the Law, as we acknowledge the impact women have had on the law, we gain an insight into the career and the life of one of Morris Blackburn's most accomplished lawyers, Head of Medical Negligence, Demetra Dubrow. Thanks for listening to Lay Down the Law. Check out the other episodes in this series wherever you get your podcasts. And hey, drop us a rating while you're there. That would be super lovely of you.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.